Three Righteous Mamas is a podcast that is on a mission to transform our country. We tell the stories that matter, celebrate the power and hope of pissed off mamas who are building a better future for all of our children. I'm Martha Pinkoffs. I'm Muna Husseini. And I'm Christina Sinsun Ramirez. Three Righteous Mamas. Let's get to it, y'all. Okay, so we're going to talk about the, the craziness of the day. There's craziness of the week, y'all. Mm. So we had planned to talk about um, the debates, but there's been so much that's happened since then. And I don't know about y'all, but it feels like trying to find stability in this crazy, unstable world for our kids is just the hard, one of the hardest things to do as a mom right now. Things seem to be changing minute to minute in this news cycle, right? And so, so yeah, I agree. Hard yeah. to figure out how to navigate. Well, and hard to regulate my own emotions so I can be a present parent, right? When I, like, every time I read the news and I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding me that this is happening? Like, and so I find that, you know, when I let that really dysregulate me, I am not the best yeah, and then I think, Martha, I mean, just if we think about the level of chaos that is created by this president across this country for millions and millions of families, like we're all being thrown into that mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really hard to deal with your emotions. I feel like I, in some ways, though, I've become, if you think about the first few months of his administration, like there's a numbness, I think, that's there now. Um, like actually when I met you, Muna, through the, you know, when we did that rally, it was, a lot of it was about the no ban, no wall rally, or sorry, the, the Muslim ban. And that was like this huge chaotic moment for our country. And now something like that can happen from day to day. And we're all like, oh, Oh. of course that happened. The desensitizing effect that they want. Well, right. That even the way that we metabolized the information about the, the, his, the forced hysterectomies, like I feel like that got a blip of a news cycle. And that is like, it, it, it speaks to the level of desensitization and... Um, like the callousness we've gotten used to that if immigrant women in the care of our federal government in this Are, day and age can be forced to have his be sterilized to be sterilized yeah and let's let's think about that on two levels right where if if our administration is pro-life <laughs> what does that mean but then double clicking again why are women or separated from men needing hysterectomies in that kind of facility it just, it were, I don't even want to have, like, finish the thought. No, I don't either. And I don't want to accept this normal, like, and I guess that that even for our kids, like, how do we reject this as normal? And how do we hold on to this, like, this decency, this, like, fight for humanity and what is right, like, how do, how do we hold on to that? How do we hold on to that right now? 
I don't know. I wonder for both of you more than for me because Santi's only three. So like mm -hmm. I'm able to create a little bubble around it, but your kids are in school and mm -hmm. like just, you know, the chaos within our school system, the chaos within the disconnect from the presidency to our governor here in Texas to local parent like parents and what they need there's just so much information that two your kids are exposed to that like I can protect my child from right now because he's so small but I don't know how you create how do you not let it be normalized but also create a sense of stability and safety for your kids I mean I know one thing that we try to do for like for that is to to give them power and agency in the moment, but to, we don't like we took them to Brianna Taylor's um, memorial in Louisville. We were driving through Louisville, and we went and paid our respects to Brianna Taylor and and told them exactly the story. This woman was sleeping in her bed. She was shot by police officers. Those police officers are not in trouble, and that offends their sense of justice like so profoundly that we try to balance it with and here's what we can do about it as a family but i do think it's important for them to especially as um as white kids with a lot of privilege i i want them to to see and participate in in that that grief and that story because it is our story too my daughter is 12 and she's very aware of everything uh, I have friends that chastise me. Why do you talk to her about everything? She doesn't need to know. And I say, what about the children that don't get a choice? My children need to be there when those children's choices are taken away. And it doesn't mean I have to, you know, I tell her enough that's, that lets her be informed um, so that she can be educated about what to do in certain situations, right? Like where, I mean, even let's just talk about watching the debate and the amount of interrupting and the rudeness, right? And like watching it is one thing, right? Like me turning my TV on was like inviting this conversation into my home. And as an adult, I just wanted to turn it off. And I'm sitting there with my 12 year old and I'm like, oh, how do I help her understand how to engage when this is what other people are doing in your presence? We have to like model it. She has to understand it. And I have to help her know where are her boundaries? Where is her agency? And then kind of curate, like, what do you let in? What do you internalize? What do you push back out? Just because something is in your proximity and near you doesn't mean it has to have something to do with you that you make your own. And so it's a conversation we have all of the time where I say, you know, people make the choices that are right for them and we're gonna make the choices that are right for us. Uh, and like, how do you stay in your lane and how do you make sure someone else has their lane, right? And so like, I try super hard not to put judgment into that, to make the choices that other people make being a wrong thing. I just say, look, they're making the choices that are right for them. Right. Um, and, and I try to just repeat like these like sort of toddler-esque <laughs> statements over and over because then she can carry them with her. 
to be able to respond in any situation. And, and the other thing I say is when these things come up or like, I'll ask her, I'm like, if someone's fighting like that around you, what should you do? And I make her model it because it makes me think of like a self-defense class I went to where you had to practice like yelling in someone's face and shoving them. It's like, you know, maybe for someone who plays soccer, it's normal to like shove people, but that's not like muscle memory that like most people have, right? And so um, how are we doing that? Because I love that you're giving your kids agency and, and talking about that. But then like, you know, if you're in the middle of a situation it takes a lot of courage to actually like yeah. stand and hold your position, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I feel like we don't have, I don't have the luxury of letting my kid hang back anymore and hope yeah. that she's not gonna deal with something. Mm -hmm. I wish that um, folks would teach, that we, someone would have taught Trump that as a child. <laughs> Um, and, and I wish that, uh, you know, it's funny because you ask kids, what do you do in that moment? And I know that so many moms watched the debate, like, um, and said, grab a mother and have her be the moderator of this, yeah. debate, right? I think we would have had a totally different, uh, outcome. We all know how to do timeouts and, uh, you know, <laughs> situation. My mom would have pinched me under the table. I would have been pinched too. Totally. <laughs> would have gotten that death stare. It would have been over. But then, okay, so since then, so we, we saw the debate unfold, but then now like Trump has gotten COVID and a lot of uh, Republicans or people close to the administration have tested positive, right? And, and there seems to be a whole other situation reverberating there. And it's, it's I'm really curious how things are gonna pan out and what, what's actually going on, because it's hard and I'm not a paranoid person, but it's really hard for me to trust, like, well, what is actually going on? And that by itself to me is problematic, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like we're trapped, all trapped in a novel. Um, and- Did Margaret Atwood write it? Yeah, that's right. Some people think that um, Margaret Atwood, for people that don't know, of course, is uh, the writer. The Handmaid's Tale. Which I started binge watching uh, last month, a really good time to watch the, um, show, but I definitely feel like we're trapped in a novel sometimes, and I just really hope it has a good ending for the majority of us. Um, I just don't know what's going to happen. One of the things I, I, th I think, like, the lessons for our kids in this moment, I saw a friend of mine post something on Twitter. He said, you know, the day that the announcement that Trump uh, had COVID, because there were all kinds of things that people were saying, right? You even had Twitter last uh, yesterday, I think, announced that they were going to um, delete people's tweets that wished people death or harm because there was so much of that. And uh, anyway, my friend posted, I know I need to be a better person and not wish harm on people, but I'm finding it really difficult to do. And um, I can understand that sentiment because there is so much harm caused by this president, real harm real, real harm, mm -hmm. irreparable harm mm -hmm. to so many families and communities. Um, but I think what's important is to not, like, I think sometimes people treat social media, especially when I think about our kids, people treat social media as like, they're just, you know, saying things out into the open space and no one can hear it and there are no consequences, but there are totally. consequences to it. And I think, so. you know, when you're being when you're 
it's always about how you respond when you're under assault or under attack, right? That really says a lot about you. And I think that, look, I do not wish Trump to be president at all. I think he is a damaging, harmful force. I would say many of the actions, um, while he may not be an evil person, the actions against communities of color, against immigrants, against Muslims are evil because they refuse to see other people's humanity. I think mm -hmm. when you refuse to see other people's humanity and your consequences on them, that that can be an evil action. While you may not be, your actions can be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want him to lose on the merits of his ideas, Me on too. the failure of them, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what I want us to see. Because I think if we, like, if we do have that, like, there, that is our redemptive moment, and that's where we choose our own adventure for better. And and we are in this like very pregnant moment where, like, we start voting in a week from tomorrow in Texas. Today was the last day people could register to vote. Um, like, this is the time for like all of us to show up and do the thing. Um, and if it's fair, which I don't know that it will be, um, I wanna see a very overwhelming rejection of that basic lack of humanity. I think your point about voting is really important in the sense that with so much change and instability and you can call it what you want. It feels like harm to me, but maybe to other people, it feels like instability. Where are the things where we can actually turn a lever? And for some people, that's voting. For other people, voting still feels like it doesn't make a difference, right? Or, you know, there's also being disenfranchised, right? With right. like, places in Houston mm -hmm. only having one place to drop off a ballot. I mean, these are things I never thought I would see in my lifetime of mm -hmm. like voter suppression so blatantly happening. Not in a history book. It's right now. Yep. Right. And um, my hope is that these younger generations do not sit out because if they show up and they're loud and proud, change is possible. I don't know that it's always intentional, like your, your path isn't going to be what you want it to be all the time, but it's so important to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's really what I want my kids to take away because I believe with the way things are going, there is this intention of having people be disengaged, like, oh, I'm so turned off. I don't want to show up. And that's a tactic. That's it tactic yeah, to, it is. to not show up and so i hope that um our kids learn and take that one page um out of our book just to keep going well i think that's a a great place to start um interviewing our guests about how to keep going so let's let's get to it Today we have Liz Lambert joining us. She's been called so smart, so Texas, and so global all at the same time. 
She hails from Odessa, Texas, is a UT and UT law grad. I'd like to brand you a change maker. You went from the field of law to being a boutique hotelier, but something tells me you're not a fan of that combination of terms. <laughs> it might be it's a true. little too frou-frou for you. So in my own words, from my reading, you take spaces and create community through creativity and connection with the land to make a place that embodies art and culture where people want to be. Liz is a partner and a new mother from what I gather. So congratulations, Liz, and welcome to the Three Righteous Mamas podcast. We are so excited to chat with you today. Thank you. I've, uh, Lyndon just turned two yes, day before yesterday, a few days ago. What was that birthday party like during COVID? Well, he doesn't know that he's two and he didn't know that it was his birthday. <laughs> so basically it was um, a, a hastily purchased cupcake from Hey Cupcake. And uh, I think we did a rendition of Happy Birthday. Yeah, this mama is guilty of that. Well, they don't know better and they'll be I mean, excited with this one cupcake. I mean, I feel like next year he might know. I don't know. I mean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now he's not going to school or seeing other children. So what does he know, right? <laughs> <laughs> he knows your house. Yeah, very well. Yeah. And uh, mamas create all the happiness in the home. And, you know, on that note, being that we are the three righteous mamas, we kind of wanted to start off talking about mamas and, and maybe your mother or any other strong maternal figure in your life. How did this person shape the way you engage with the world? You know, that could be business, politics, parenthood, your worldview, your creativity, right? I'd really like to, to think about that and hear about that influence for you. Wow, okay, that's, a, that's awesome that you guys start off that way. Um, I, I um, you know, my mom was a huge influence on me, she was a very, West Texas woman, a woman of that particular place in time. And if you ever go into Joanne's on South Congress, um, you will see there's a big portrait of her with, um, she's got a shotgun. She's got her hand on her hip and her nails painted red and a shotgun uh, over her shoulder. And that doesn't, definitely does not sum her up, but it definitely gives you a little uh, view of Joanne. Um, so you, I, you, she shaped so many things for me and um, so much of my just view of the world and expectation of the best in people and all kinds of things like that. But she really instilled uh, a love of hotels in me and I'm always, I've always been thankful to her for that. That's so sweet. How, how does one instill a love of hotels in their children? It's interesting because in our, our previous um, podcast, we talked about sort of intentionally being focused with our children. And, and I'll be honest, that's not what <laughs> crossed my, my, you know, it's not on my list, but now I think it needs to be on there. I don't know that it was intentional. Um, I mean, I don't think it was on her list of, you know, oh my God, think about our mothers are, I'm 56, so it's a whole different thing. It's like, I had three older brothers and I think just, you know, 
I can't imagine there were many rules at all around anything in my upbringing period. Right. Um, it was just kind of the wild west. And so uh, I don't think it was intentional that she instilled a love of hotels. It's just that she, um, you know, we, my, my, my grandfather was a rancher and he didn't have an office. And so I think that the hotels that my mom loved or that I, that I first experienced were hotels that were part of a community where they were sort of a, a meeting spot where um, there you could get your sh boots shined or you would take business meetings or you could get your hair cut or um, you'd have Sunday brunch. Uh, they, you know, and Odessa was far from glamorous, but it had a hotel downtown and um, that was my experience from early on uh, that that was kind of this place uh, yeah i guess now we would call it a third place mm -hmm. but it was a place that wasn't your home and it wasn't uh, it was a familiar place but it was just a, a, another place that you would go but it felt a little more elevated you know you knew that you had to be maybe dressed in a certain way and on better behavior uh, my mom also really loved to travel and so um she would we would go she'd love to stay in a, a nice hotel so a lot of the events of my life because usually when you're at a hotel something's going on right so right. a lot of the events of my life i can name the hotel i was at when it happened you were um, engineered i guess so i mean i mean it was a, i'm sort of an accidental hotelier but um yeah it's, for sure. You know, my mom actually, they used to take the train. Uh, my mom grew up in Odessa as well. They used to take the train into Fort Worth to like go to the doctor, and go shopping and do those kinds of things. And my mom actually, they, they took an overnight train from Odessa to Fort Worth uh, the night, the, the day that Kennedy was shot. Wow. And oh, wow. he actually came down when they got to the, the Texas hotel, they were waiting in the lobby and he came down with, um, with Jackie and with Lyndon Johnson, and like another politician, I don't remember who, and- um, George Conley, I bet. George Conley, that's right. Yeah. And they, and uh, Kennedy gave a speech in the parking lot at, at, the Fort, at the Texas Hotel, and my granddad pushed my mom forward and she shook Kennedy's hand. Oh my God. And right after that, they left for Dallas, yeah. Wow. My mind is just blown like right now. I, I know, know, right? I have the full Your chill. So she sh shook his hand on the day he died. Yeah. Ah. And I was wild. probably two months, two, three months old. Yeah. It's um, amazing then that you have these experiences in your youth. I remember being in hotels and all the things going on and apparently you were dressed and on better behavior than normal and um by the way i'm not always on better behavior at a hotel <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for later in the podcast we want to hear about your that's for the dykes and debutantes section we'll say, we'll say yeah tell us the, the the most naughty thing you've ever done in a hotel oh you don't confession, just not confession for, section yeah. no <laughs> I even made myself blush. <laughs> so, so for our viewers that um, don't know, Liz is the, the brains behind Hotel San Jose in Austin, which is, you know, if you're not aware, 
it is an icon in Austin. And I think it was sort of the, the thing that paved the road for South Congress or the SoCo district being on the map, right? And that's not the, the only place of community Liz has uh, created, if you will. We, we can also talk about El Cosmico, right? Out in Marfa, which is, um, you know, Spartan trailers, yurts, tents, wood-fired hot tubs. I mean, when Beyonce shows up, I think that's that's it, right? Like, Queen Bay is there, you're done, right? And so... I feel like him. Yeah. I, I, and Solange. Yeah. yeah. And so when you think about your youth, and I know you just told us a little bit about how your mother instilled this love of hotels for you, but like, what really drove you to do this work, right? There must have been some feeling or something, or, or, or was it more just like things unfolded as you went? And in my tech world, it's like this iterative approach, right? Like, did you have a vision or did you walk the yellow brick path and you got there? I think a little bit of both, you know, but I, so um, hospitality was always a part of my upbringing for sure. But um, yeah, I went when I, I, my undergraduate degree was in poetry and creative writing and poetry, not very useful, not really great on the job market. But um, so I ended up going to law school at UT and my first job out of law school was at the DA's office in Manhattan. And then I went to the attorney general's office back here in Austin when I moved back. And uh, I sort of stumbled into the San Jose. Um, I was interested in design and I'd long been interested in design. Uh, one of my brothers was um, worked for Knoll and ICF and I'd always been drawn to it, but I never imagined anything I would do with it. But I think what happened, the San Jose, back back when I bought, I bought the San Jose for about $500,000. And my oh, mom, wow. <laughs> I know, <laughs> it was in 1990, the end of 1995, started 1996, and there was nothing on South Congress. I mean, the Continental Club was there. Uh, a few other shops were there but not much. I mean, there yeah. were never any cars on the street. And the San Jose was a $30 a night, seafoam green, uh, run down, sort of people considered it dangerous at night. Mm -hmm. And a lot of South Congress felt that way. You know, it I had wasn't been, allowed to go there in high school. Yeah, I, right, exactly. But I think a lot of people weren't. I mean, it had been, it was this grand avenue South Congress was, and it led from the Capitol to San Antonio, that was the main highway to San Antonio. And then as a lot of downtowns, um, there, there was just, um, as highways came in, I-35 came in first, and then the, many years later, Mopac came in, and that just kind of drove all, all business from downtown Austin, and particularly south of the river. And so you had a lot of these little low-lying, single loaded businesses that just went out of business or were boarded up or were super, super cheap rent and just a kind of hodgepodge of shops there. But definitely no restaurants. I, Schlossky's, the very first Schlossky's was on South Congress and I think it remained when I, when I got to San Jose. So there was a, a Taiwanese couple that was at the San Jose and they were moving to Houston and they had put the San Jose in 
the Chinese newspaper. I did not, I didn't know that, or they were just about to. And I, I just wandered over one day to see if they would ever consider selling it. And so it was sort of total serendipity. Um, and I did, had no idea what I was doing. And um, so they really, I brought a bottle of champagne to the closing, I remember. And we, we met in the parking lot for them to hand the keys over because we weren't going to close the place down. I couldn't afford to. I'd, there were a lot of people staying there. I just had no idea. They just didn't have cars or luggage or come out during the day. And um, they, I basically, they handed me the keys and I thought that we would toast or something. And they were just like, bye. bye. <laughs> they had a daughter who was just out of med school in Houston and they were like, we're going there. So, um, I, you know, I, I almost literally stumbled into it and, um, you know, it, it was over the years, uh, by the time we've it was a long journey to the renovation of the San Jose. We opened the way we are now in, um, March of 2000. So it took four years to get it maybe a little bit yeah four yeah four years I mean, we were under construction for about 18 months but it took me two years and change to to convince a bank that it was a good idea <laughs> to make a loan on a business on south congress particularly a boutique hotel right how do you end up convincing them i'm i'm very tenacious <laughs> And I, you know, the whole thing was we built the San Jose for nothing. I mean, it was, if you think about it, in the, it was under $2 million. Right. So it, it just couldn't be done. We don't, you know, I'm, I'm working on a 74 room hotel in New Orleans right now that's, you know, 20 times that. It just, I, I, was, I was able to do it because I wasn't doing anything else and I didn't know what I didn't know. And, I, you know, I, there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of boutique hotels um, at the time. And, you know, a lot of people would have considered the San Jose a severely limited service hotel with concrete floors and no restaurant. And it was, it seemed pretty stripped back. Yeah. You know what, what comes up for me when you're talking is in this day and age, we hear so much about women or minority owned businesses struggling to get funding. And that's now, right? And there's programs for, you know, uh, black owned businesses or, or VC funding, right? For, for minority owned businesses. How does that feel now versus 20 years ago going to well, get funding? I'm telling you, I was, I was a lawyer that worked, was an expert in government and bureaucracy and it was impossible for me to get an SBA loan yeah. like it was like it was incredibly hard and I thought at the time like if I can't figure this out how does how do people figure it out mm -hmm. you know particularly small startup businesses I mean I think what's to me fascinating about both San Jose and El Cosmico is also about you know, you went through this big career change. <laughs> it was like a yeah. total gamble um, financially. And um, I'm sure you had never done that before. So I'm also in a location that was a gamble. <laughs> so just like throwing it all out. And, you know, I think about two pieces. One, like, how did you make that big career change at a 
you know, you probably could have gone in a totally different direction in your life. Um, and why did you decide to go this way? You know, I don't know that I knew the, what doors, what world I was stepping into. I mean, it really, and when we talk about it, it is, you know, huge gamble, huge change, that's true. But if you think about it, it was fairly low risk as far as, you know, $500,000 was a lot, mm -hmm. but it, in the world of hotels, it's, it's nothing. And um, I, I had to have my mom co-sign the note. Did I say that? It's true. <laughs> but this was off, is also named after her <laughs> right but had it been higher stakes i don't think anybody would have ever given me the loan or believed in me or nor would have i had the stomach to try it i yeah, there were so many nights that i laid awake and thought about selling the san jose because i couldn't make payroll or i couldn't figure it out but uh and who knew that south congress would take off the way it did or who knew that I would do other hotels later on. I, I didn't know any of that then. I was just kind of scrappy. I wanted to do something different than what I was doing. And I really remember vividly at the time, <clears throat> my brother was HIV positive and I had a friend who had full-blown AIDS. And during this time when I approached the San Jose to see if they would ever sell it, my friend Tony died in those few weeks. And it was kind of a decision for me. And it was one of those, you know, I think a lot of us go through, particularly that early part of our lives without facing mortality in that way. And it's a game changer when you do. I mean, it just changes everything. Anybody who's lost somebody that wasn't a grandparent, somebody that was <clears throat> significant to them and, and, you know, unexpected. I think it really, changes the way we make decisions and it changes the lens through which we see the world. And that happened for me at that moment. And so it really, I really felt like I'm never going to know if I don't give this a shot. Did it also change your, I mean, I also think about you've created these really, <clears throat> these spaces that are, feel like communities that kind of feel like a dream and art and culture mixed together. <clears throat> And I'm wondering for you too, like at that time, I think a lot about like spaces for queer folks and how that was so critical for, I mean, it still is, but at that time period, you know, being able to have a, a safe place and feel like you were your own community, did that resonate with you or did that have anything to do with it? Enormously. I mean, you know, I think it's sort of second nature to me, but I've always, it's funny when we talk about identity, <clears throat> <clears throat> but I've always identified as an outsider, completely. I mean, I grew up in West Texas, and I was this little dyke, you know. It's like, I didn't, might not have known it at the time, but um, I, and so for me, you know, I just spent the last two or three years working the front desk at the San Jose Motel, and that was my community. Um, those people that, there were a lot of people that lived there, and there were people that would come and go regularly, and those people have become my community and my friends. And so I think it was just, I somehow in my DNA, and then I was that, that, that community, creating community and, and sharing community, but somehow that made me be able to engineer that the people that I worked around me felt the same. I mean, we were this band of outsiders. I mean, 
I decided early on not to hire anybody with any hotel experience, which <laughs> I would never do now, right? That's crazy. It's nuts. But it was, we were charging 75 bucks a night when we first opened the San Jose. And so the people that I was naturally drawn to were artists and, um, and gay people and um, musicians. And, and those were the first people that really ran the San Jose. It wasn't sustainable in the long run, but in the early days, we were just trying to get people Fine. indoors. You know, we had no idea. And so we did things that nobody would let you do now. And, you know, I would turn away people that wanted to rent the courtyard if I questioned their politics at all. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have, yeah, I still would. But, <laughs> but, but that, you know, it's, there are more people and more investors and more banks and more of all of that in the work I do now. But at the time, we were, it was kind of like, you know, come on, let's put on a play in the backyard and we'll charge everybody 25 cents to come and see it. You know, it was that sort of mentality. So fun. And it's people write me all the time now or, or email me or DM me and they want to make a career change or they want to do hotels. And I don't, I don't know how to tell them that the magic was, it was this moment in time where the risk wasn't so high and I didn't know what I was doing. And I happened to, get lucky with a lot of really talented people around me and that's what happened and I don't know how to tell somebody how to do that you can't do it in Austin anymore I don't think so a little pricey here yeah um it's Christina to your question it was it was a place like the space that was created is a place that I healed after I had come out and had hard times with all sorts of people that were very dear to me um, it was this, this like sacred space where I knew that I was safe. I knew that I belonged. I, and I, like, I belonged in my complete form, not in my, like, in the, the place where I had to show up with a mask on, but like, I could be all of it there. And I mean, it really between the patio at Joe's and a thousand coffees there and maybe a hundred and <laughs> 50,000 bottles of wine at the San Jose. <laughs> and that was before Frosé. It was, yeah, it was before Frosé. <laughs> we had some Michiladas. That was some, those were really good too. Um, but it was, it really was, it was like the first identifiably safe space for me as a human on this earth in Austin, Texas. That's so I didn't nice fit, to hear Martha. Thanks. I didn't fit at the cattle company. I didn't fit. No in west austin but i fit there and it was cattle company was that gay bar on fourth right yeah i moved to austin and i went there to, for an event and i was like i love that queer spaces are also taking up like the two-step <laughs> <laughs> they have been for a long time in texas that's right you guys i forget when i when we first opened the san jose i decided that i didn't that i was gonna hire like I, I did want to hire a bunch of brown folks in housekeeping, like just Latinas in housekeeping. So I started hiring musicians and of course, mainly female. That's all that was really applying. And it was a disaster. They like, I remember very well two women that worked for me that would just like, it was hard and they would just start crying 
and crying and crying. And it was, it was one of those um, uh, just experiments that didn't work out so well. Everybody quit on me. Musicians is housekeeping. And musicians is, you know, like they're great for some jobs and then they're not for others. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, hey, Liz, so I told these guys that we are both debutante dykes. Mm -hmm. That's true. And they, there are a couple things. Like, How about a sorority? I was also in a sorority. And I was too. We were in the same sorority. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but first, they, they asked about how the use of the word dyke, which... Mm. Who do you think, like, where are we with that word now? I mean, I'm fine with it. I like it. I'm a, I don't know if it's generational either. I don't either, I feel but I like it. it's, yeah, I feel like it's been reclaimed. But I talked to Erin, my wife is younger than me by 18 years, and she, she doesn't like the word so much. She doesn't? I, no, but I feel like it's like a reclaimed word. I you feel know? like it is too. Like, yeah, really. yeah. Well, queer is probably more acceptable and also broader. Broader. Right? Way mm -hmm. broader. To be a dyke, I think that, I think that you think of a particular kind of gay woman, but, and I don't know that that's really true. I the don't. The head nodders. The head nodders. I mean, butcher, maybe? I don't I know. I think it, it feels like a butcher word to me. Yeah. Like, I don't think of my wife as a dyke, even though she's a dyke. She's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of it across the board, but I think that maybe I'm, I, I think of it too broadly. Can you all explain for folks that don't, because I didn't know what a debutante was, like I, I hear the <laughs> of an image in my head, but I want to know what a dyke is, but maybe not a debutante. I definitely know what a dyke is. Debutante is like, I'm looking up like, what the fuck? Googling images. <laughs> also, I really think that we should have uh, upload the pictures of y'all in your dresses because the dresses are fantabulous. They oh were quinceañera culture. Yeah, totally. It is like quinceañera culture. I actually think culture. there needs to be a children's book from debutante to like there is <laughs> like a board book, right? Like how do you? <laughs> What's I mean? Okay, so what my experience was as a debutante, like you are being introduced to the world as as a marrying person. A marry Yes, yeah, as a marriageable person. And that's the tradition. Right? Like yeah. there's even a bachelor's club like Deb Ball where you are introduced to the bachelors as like we call them to escorts. To. So fucking weird to like say it out loud. <laughs> there is a great doc about uh black debutante culture in the south by Margaret Brown. Have you, oh, has yeah. you ever seen that? Yeah. I haven't seen that, but I love what Margaret does. I do too. Um, so it's usually this thing that ha has happened that like so you have to be invited. And so it's a society thing as well, which means that somebody's a member of something or somebody's giving money in a particular way. And it's traditionally a way of introducing your daughter to mm -hmm. society to say she's eligible. And that was the tradition. I think it's far from that tradition by, by I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I don't know what it's like now. And it's usually for some charity, ostensibly, you know, like there's a big ball and it's usually a charity ball and there's, you know, a big band and the, you have a white dress and you come and you out bow. and you bow. Yeah. 
What do yeah, you, you bow all the way down. Mm -hmm. How old are you when you do it? Different ages at different places. I was a um, sophomore in college. I was a freshman in college. Okay. Yeah. So what would uh, Liz and Martha, what would um, sophomore, freshman, whatever, college age to you, um, how would you see yourself now? Doing that? No, like how would you, how do you see yourself now given that person that you were then? Like what would that little 20 year old look at your life now and say? Oh my God, she would be like, really, I get to? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I had a real hesitancy when I, when this happened. Um, I remember I had a boyfriend, an elder boyfriend occasionally at the time who said that, um, you know, it was, you know, had gone on and on about it, representing everything vile and elitist and a capitalist culture. And I agreed with him at the time. I mean, I'd spent the summer before in Mexico, just like bumming around. And so I didn't want to do it. And then I saw how it was going to break my mother's heart and my grandmother's heart if I didn't. And it was like this huge thing. I, was, I really did it for them. But I mean, I was also realizing I was gay at right about the same time. So I think my, my whatever year old self, 19 year old self, 20 year old self would have been stoked. Mine would have been like, oh my God, I can't believe I get to. Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy to think about like from then probably till now about just how much culture and space has like created space for families like your alls to be and exist. Yeah. You know, I couldn't have ever imagined that family. I mean, you know, like Bowers v. Hardwick, when was that? Like, when was Bowers in two, 2004? Wait, what year am I it completely? Was... That it was finally legal to, ha to have sex. Right. Which... But did it even come to Texas? Well, it was a Supreme Court decision that basically was... Um, uh, it was based, it was in Georgia, and it was a case, a sodomy case, where they considered, there were sodomy laws that considered um, any, it didn't have to be same-sex couples, it could be um, opposite-sex couples, but it was basically, there was a law against sodomy, which was oral sex, or I think digital penetration, something like that. Mm -hmm. But never enforced against anybody but gay people. And Let's I remember see. hearing George Bush, like I, we were in the bathroom at Guero's and he was the governor then talking about how he was going to protect families and gay people were a real threat to families. And I will, I'll never forget like absorbing all of that messaging. Yeah. I mean, we're living what, like in a really like, um, as far as publicly seen and supported more, not completely, but more. LGBT families, what, five, seven years, really, since yeah. the court decision, because before even then, it was still, like, so, radical. so much, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, it's great to be with two debutantes that have gone through their transitions. That's right. Um, like be, little butterflies. That's right. Uh, we're actually... Um, so, but, it was actually, so it was, it was 2004, maybe it was 2003 that... Lawrence v. Texas overturned Bowers. So if you think about growing up in 1986 and 
and sodomy that Supreme Court had the chance to overturn sodomy laws and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And then it took another tw almost 20 years. Could that be true? So think about how um, shaping that was f to understand that. I mean, I kind of like the idea of being an outlaw. Yeah. You know, and, and that sex was basically illegal. Illegal. But yeah. <laughs> made things harder, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, and yeah. Anyhow, so I digress. It is so interesting for me to, to hear this. I mean, I already know this, but the realization that separation of church and state is not really a thing, even though we talk about it. We and, about it a lot, right? and that it's really just separation of church and state for everyone that's in the out group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And like, we need to start calling it what it is. It's not religious freedom. It is religious domination. And ironically for me, I find it so funny because whatever all the stuff is that we're accused of, of Sharia law, it's mm -hmm. just Sharia law painted in someone else's religion. And by the way, Sharia law says you follow the laws of the country you live in, right? And so it's not even pushing religious law. It's like, right. okay, what are the laws where you live? Follow those laws. Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing Sharia law right now, whatever right. you can call it. Or maybe we're outlaws, I don't know. But um, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's just always so interesting for me to, to, to realize where the line is and who gets to draw it and what does that mean? Thank you yeah. for, for sharing that, right? Um, like, you know, I know that you guys haven't asked yet, but I, you would wonder why I went to the DA's office in Manhattan. And uh, <laughs> my next question would be, Christina's okay, in. So, so I'll tell you that I felt like at the time, I was a, it was me and another guy. Uh, we were the first openly gay people hired at the DA's office. It was 1991 openly gay. I mean, there were plenty of queers there. They were just like, you know, closety. closety. And um, I went through, I uh, interviewed at Legal Aid at the same time and got a job offer from Legal Aid and somebody with my politics probably would have gone to Legal Aid, but I really felt like that you, being able to be inside the power structures where change can happen sometimes more quickly. If, if it's time. And so I actually am, it's funny, I'm on a, I'm still friends with, I went in with a class of, you went into different trial bureaus and I was just as street crime. And I, there were eight of us in the trial bureau I was in and five of us are still regular friends and get together and um, we just Zoomed the other night and we were talking about that, about how it was, you know, it was a crazy time. I was, I was a member of ACT UP at the time. Wow. And of course the DA's office didn't know what to do with that. Right. And ACT UP sure as hell didn't know what to do with an assistant district attorney at their meetings. And it was just, it was, it was the first year that we marched in the gay pride parade and we would like march between the police and the fire department. And my girlfriend at the time worked for um, minority, the minority task force on AIDS up in Harlem. And I was like, come on, come over and march with us. And she was like, fuck you. I'm with the House of Africa. <laughs> Why don't you come march with us? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, there was a lot of change then. And I, I still, you know, I still stand by 
I, I still think that it did make a difference. I mean, it would have happened any moment, but it was really interesting to be on the forefront of, of, of that moment when, uh, I don't know, when people were coming out in power structures. Yeah. Because I do think it's one of the last places where people were really, I could probably that in Hollywood where people were really closeted. And I just, it changed everything. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so much of your story has been about like kind of key transformations that other people didn't see coming perhaps. Like if we look at that debutante to, you know, who you are today, queer mom, like probably other people couldn't have seen that, but you saw that and felt that in yourself. Uh, creating El Cosmico and Hotel San Jose and becoming really like this renowned person of creating space and community from being, you know, working in the attorney general's office in Texas. Like those are big, big leaps. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you could give advice to anybody listening that is a woman or like a mom in her, her career and life and like wants to make this big transition is, an, is afraid to do it. Cause like both of those are big transitions or big coming outs or, you know, I guess, how did you do that? What would be your advice to folks that are looking to make a big leap or transition in their own lives? I mean, I have to say that, of course, I'm colored by coming from a place of some privilege. And somehow, you know, I think that makes you feel like you have a little bit better landing pad. So I appreciate um, where it feels like a bigger risk uh, to make a, a, a big change. But I think it's also super scary not to make the change. I think we have one life and there, I see so many people that are afraid of change, but they're really unhappy the way they are. And it just seems like such a waste of, you know, such a waste of, of life to be so unhappy and so afraid of change that it just, you know, it's a choice not to change mm -hmm. as well. And so I think it's like, I don't know, create a network of people that support you and uh, take the, you know, get as ready as you can. And I don't, I think not, a lot of things aren't irreversible. I think you can always find another nine to five job that you might be just as unhappy in. <laughs> so, you know, why not give it a shot? Yeah. So considering all these things, Right. You've, you've, um, you know, West Texas outsider, law school, BA, act up, debutante, and then hotelier. Um, even with privilege, there were a lot of things going, right? Going on internally, externally, right? Like, it doesn't sound like it was just easy. You would just wake up and be like, "La, I know what I'm doing today. <laughs> no. Talk us through, like you mentioned earlier, you have like sleepless nights or you'd stay up wondering how you make payroll, right? Mm -hmm. those, those are still even, even having your mom co-sign your loan, right? Like that's still stress, right? Yeah. Showing up as an openly queer woman at the, you know, assistant DA, that's still stress, right? I do have to say, I was. A f I feel like I was. If somebody could dispute me on this. I feel like I was the first woman to wear pants in the courtroom at the DA's office. Oh, fun! But it was a pants suit. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, I've been again. Like I said, I've been 
I've been lucky to have been able to cultivate some relationships of strong people that have supported me. And um, my girlfriend at the time, Martha will remember, uh, Margaret Tucker. Mm -hmm. Margaret kept her, was also a lawyer. And when I was at the San Jose making, I think $1,000 a month, if that, um, Margaret was supporting me. Um, I, I don't know. I just, it's, I, I don't, I don't have a answer for that. I think it's self-reinforcing though. Mm -hmm. I think when you make a leap, even if it's a little leap and that feels good and you feel relieved and you have some, um, you know, it, you feel better. I, I think that reinforces you to be able to do the next thing and the take next a bigger thing, step. the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. For I've sure. Had, I share that experience. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't work and you have yeah. to like scramble and that's also not the end of and the world. And it's okay if it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've always felt, I don't no longer feel this way, but for a really long time, I felt like I can always get a job waiting tables. Totally. Right now, I don't know but that it's I can my hard skills. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> I, it, it, that's my hard skills. Like if, <laughs> if all else fails, I can totally cook in a restaurant or wait tables. Um, oh. Okay. I have a final question. So we started with how being a mom, how your mom shaped the way that you engage with the world. I'm curious how becoming a mom oh, come on. has shaped like to... <laughs> how you engaged with the world. I mean, I've gotten to witness some of it. Um, you know, um, it totally softens you, right? And it completely splits you wide open. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he's like, he just turned two and he's really communicating and really, um, uh, yeah, look, I don't even have words for it. I mean, it's just yeah. like watching them grow into these little beings that um, you that is part of you. You know, I, I definitely had a, um, I'd had some concern being an older parent and I had, I don't know if I really had concern, but I definitely thought about the fact that genetically he did not share my DNA, but I, it's so clear to me now that he's, completely shaped and formed by me i think yeah. to the point that he even has my hair yeah <laughs> totally i don't share dna with my kids either and yeah. i feel the same way yeah yeah but um it's been amazing it's what i can't believe i almost made it through life without having this experience yeah it's pretty amazing would you say martha the earlier the coolest new job is being a mom yeah <laughs> Totally. I mean, there's a lot of people with that job right now, aren't there? Boy. But it's the most, I'm sure it's the most of all the things you've done on your resume, right? Of all the things, it's still probably the most fun, enriching, and joyful. And I'm sure the challenges come later in the teen years, which I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> Those little bitties challenged me just fine. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for taking your time, like after putting your sun down and coming to hang out with us late at night. We're doing yeah. recording actually kind of almost past everyone's bedtime because this is when moms can do it. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, 
And I wanted to just reflect on we one of the things you said you actually brought up a butterfly, you know, and I feel like if you look at your career, your life, there's just like these key moments about transforming and becoming something new. And also this like journey to find home. And um, it made me think a lot about actually the monarch butterfly. So the monarch butterfly, their homeland is in the state where my family comes from in, in Mexico was Michoacan. And they'll travel 5,000 miles, some of them up to 5,000 miles to come back to the state of Michoacan. And I was reading about them and the fact that, you know, they'll all get on these for these types of trees and they'll cluster in the millions. And that the reason they do that is because they create microclimates to protect one another. Oh, and I think so much about El Cosmico San Jose building these spaces in the 90s when queer communities were so under attack, like you created a microclimates to protect a community. That's a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. So thank you for uh, being yeah. time and space with us and creating our own little microclimate for moms to protect. And Sure. I'll hang out with you guys anytime. You know, hearing her talk, to me, she really made the case for diversity, inclusion, and equity in the workplace. So much of the conversation that's going on right now, right? Being an outsider uh, as a DA driving change, coming to Austin, being an outsider, building a hotel that really reset the culture in the city, mm -hmm. right? Going out to West Texas, creating this community in every single one of those spaces, she was not part of the in crowd doing what the in, like everyone says you should do. She was always outside looking in, just trying to figure things out. Yes, she had a cushion, it sounds like with her family and a little bit of privilege, but she was still struggling, like swimming upstream. Mm -hmm. And look at all of the amazing accomplishments and contributions to our city and culture and the world right. that Liz has been able to drive. I don't need a business case. That is the business case. That is the business case. It was really good. Well, and I, I mean, I can, I can be more personal about it because Liz and I have been friends for 15, maybe even 20 years. We've been riding bicycles together. Um, but in, in Liz, like I'm able to see in the world an example of like what somebody who looks like me and who has my gender expression, um, what's possible for us, right? Like I can see it. And part of I think why it took me so long to come out was that I didn't see myself in the community anywhere because also the, the what we were shown was such a narrow slice of the queer world um and it's so broad and colorful and there's something for everyone there but i didn't know that when i was 12 years old and shooting hoops trying to not be gay which is a really weird way to try not to be gay but whatever um so i like from a personal place i it means so much to have people available to look up to brings me back to the portrait of her mom right mm -hmm. Red nails, shotgun over her shoulder. Unapologetic. How are we painting those pictures for our kids? Right? 
Texas. Mine, don't, mine doesn't include red nails. <laughs> but you know what? It didn't I don't have time to paint any nails. <laughs> I want painted nails and I don't have time. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, I think one, one last thing I'll end on. I like, I took so many notes, y'all. I have like pages and pages of notes I was scribbling, even just for myself, where I was like, wow, wow. This, um, when she said, I, I don't share my children's genetics, that one hit me kind of hard because we've talked so much about how we want to build a world for all of our children. Mm -hmm. And our, our um, love goes to all the children, mm -hmm. right? Because we believe that vision is for all of our children. And so um, that, one, that one is still kind of rolling around in my head. Mm -hmm. And then when she said, but we, sh I, I don't share his genetics, but I shape him. I mold him. Mm -hmm. He is right. Like, and that's the truth. Like the legacy of being a parent, like, is this massive responsibility gift and privilege. Like Santi, I think about it sometimes. Cause I, I think a lot about it during COVID actually, I've been thinking a lot about death, which is sad. Mm -hmm. um, but I think about perhaps the only people that will ever remember you, like always remember you are your children or your mother or father, right? Like those are the people that will really always remember you no matter what, how long it's been or anything, because they will wake up thinking about you. They will go to sleep thinking about you. Like you permeate everything that are, um, that's like part of that.